Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. We are broadcasting live from Bloomberg's The Year Ahead Conference at Bloomberg headquarters in New York City. On the other side of the country is currently uh, the LA Auto Show. Uh, and there is Volvo. And they did not bring a car this year to the auto show to display. Hokin Samuelson, who is the chief executive officer of Volvo, joins us now from there. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. So why didn't you want to display a car? And what does it mean to have a concept car? <laughs> okay, nice being with you. We really see that uh, maybe the times when you show the car pulled off the clothes uh, in front of an audience is, uh, feels a bit outdated especially as the car of the future will have a lot more than just the hardware. So we decided then let's focus on, on those new customer experiences instead of the hardware and then maybe to not dilute the message, let's take the car out. So we have here uh, one station we talk about in-car infotainment system of the future where we have a partnership with uh, Google bringing in the Android in the car. Another interesting example of a connectivity service is uh, with Amazon. We have people from Amazon here showing how you can get your internet uh, supply uh, directly into your car because normally you are not at home when they come to deliver the stuff. So that's a practical uh, solution also for our, for our customers. So these are two examples of uh, what the car of the future could could be, besides then, of course, a, a nice car. Can you tell us a little bit about the 360C? This is the concept car that Lisa was referring to, and the venture that you have with Luminar and how the technology that Luminar is pursuing with you is really going to change the in-car experience. And, and I have a feeling that you'll even be able to have a glass of champagne while you're in the car, and it won't, it won't be a danger. Okay, it's a really good point, because, of course, to be able to enjoy any type of in-car uh, in uh, infotainment, or, uh, you need to have a car which, of course, could be driven safely, automated. And that's where Luminar comes into the picture. I mean, that's a very interesting startup uh, that we have also on stand here, which is a long-range, high-definition LiDAR. <clears throat> so it's really, as with um, human, the, the ability to see is crucial for a safe drive. And, and, I mean, the computer also needs to have better vision. It has cameras, radars, but also LiDARs. And then the LiDAR is especially important. And uh, I think Luminar is taking a step forward here of having a, a long-range, high-definition LiDAR. Hogan, I have to think, you know, you're talking about the experience, and there seems to be a de-emphasis of actually purchasing the vehicle. And perhaps this is what's behind uh, General Motors and the recent announcement they came out with to cut a huge proportion of their staff in response to changes in automation and electronification, as well as just the reality, which is the car cycle is slowing. What's your thought on that? Nice. 
uh, we don't really see a um, a indication of a weaker market so far. I mean, we have been very fortunate with our new car lines, and and we have the right cars being now popular on the on the on the market. SUVs. We have three quarter of our sales is already today SUVs, but. Uh, the last quarter is also very important, and we have a very attractive new car being built in South Carolina, a new sedan. So I think uh, there will, it will not be 100% SUVs. Uh, there will be also a market for, for other cars. So we are fortunate to have a strong product lineup, and we can then, uh, of course, uh, continue growing our market share, and that will help us. And, and we are lucky than to be small not always good to be big sometimes yeah. it's also an advantage being small because it's easier to grow them okay i'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about producing cars in the u.s versus the rest of the world and sort of the competitive balance there i mean do you find it to be prohibitively expensive to expand production in the united states versus say china yeah, I mean, uh, with now tariffs uh, between China and uh, and the U.S., that has, of course, complicated uh, using a sort of uh, exchange system between these two markets. We we were planning really to build a big sedan in China and import it into, continue importing it into U.S., which we have been doing for some years. And then the one built in South Carolina was intended to go the other way. But of course, with very high tariffs, we have to be able. We have to react to that. So right now, we are planning to build the, the car we are building in South Carolina, also in China, because we'll be too expensive paying the 25% import duties. But um, still, uh, I would say we have mitigated these new tariffs so far. So by by, and we were lucky to have the factory in the U.S. But, I mean, if it would continue, then, of course, would be really a really big drawback for, I think, all, all car makers. If, if uh, also U.S. And, and U.S. would introduce high tariffs. And that would be, at the end, more expensive cars for the consumer. I think they are the ones who will be paying the bill at the end. Thanks very much for being with us. Hoken Samuelson, Chief Executive Officer of Volvo, and joining us from the LA Automobile Show. And I don't think it's going to be an automobile show anymore, Lisa. I think it's just going to be a technology show the way it's going. Yeah, well, honestly, it's interesting to me the focus on the practical experience, how to download your music, your audiobooks, you know, how sure. to sort of, you know, create an how experience. How to use those systems. Right, exactly. And that it becomes a tutorial exactly that in tech. Indeed. All right. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. We are broadcasting from the Bloomberg Year Ahead Summit at Bloomberg World Headquarters. We are so lucky to be joined by Franz Müller. He is president and chief executive officer of Aho Deles, uh, which is based in the Netherlands, but he joins us here at our headquarters. Um, this brand is the uh, owner of Stop and Shop, Peapod, Food Lion, Giant, and Hannaford. So right now, do you view trade as potentially the biggest threat to your business or technological changes that you need to keep up with? Yeah, that's for sure, the, the market is still very co competitive and it will also remain the same in, in next year. 
And you see that technology is uh, going to have a big impact on our industry, uh, f for sure, to make a customer journey even more attractive, to make it easier for customers to prepare their shop, to predict their list, uh, but also to give them more uh, information on, uh, on all kinds of things like food and navigation, on healthier choices for food. So I think technology will be a, 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 is going to play a big role. Another thing what's going to be uh, an important thing on technology is the whole food provenance. Uh, we just had the romaine lettuce uh, scare in the US, a big thing. And uh, I think more and more people talk about technology like blockchain to make sure that you have the full supply chain visible. And the third thing on technology is that um, if you look at, at labor in general, um, there's a lot of things in the supply chain of retailers uh, where we can gain efficiencies with uh, more automation, more robotization of uh, warehouses and these kind of things. So technology will be a uh, very important factor also for the coming years. Are you also looking to shrink the actual size of the grocery store, make it smaller? I think what we can see is that um, uh, that online will have an impact on the bigger stores, uh, but we use that space to uh, to have even more a stronger fresh parameter in those stores, to do more in organic, to do more in fresh food, and to have better offers. Um, and at the same time, uh, we also operate the smaller convenience stores, and we have a lot of them in Europe, uh, of course, and I think there's also potential in the US to operate uh, smaller stores, smaller supermarkets. So uh, you were speaking to a publication earlier this month and you said that uh, your company is in a good position for U.S. mergers and acquisitions. What kinds of companies are you thinking about and uh, how, how quickly will this play out? Yeah, we, um, we launched two weeks ago this leading together strategy um, where growth is very important but also non-organic growth we see as an opportunity. And if we just stick to the U.S. on the East Coast, I think that we'll see a further consolidation on the East Coast where a lot of companies cannot make up, let's say, with the investments they have to make in technology, in online, and these kind of things. So there will be a further consolidation. And with the brands you just mentioned, uh, where we are very proud about, um, we think that we can deepen our footprint along the whole East Coast by fill-in acquisitions, or if we have other targets coming up, then we would be interested. In. Any names? No, no, there's no, uh, no names at the moment. And you know everything about uh, forward-looking statements. <laughs> Speak a little bit, if you can, about in-store dining and also the yeah. takeaway prepared food business? Yeah. I think that's a great question. Uh, you see that more and more customers are looking for meal solutions and or to save time or to get inspiration or to have in a very healthy proposition uh, but take it out and, uh, and in-store dining uh, is part of this. We have now a lot of stores where we have kitchens inside where people uh, can consume their meals. Uh, we have more and more uh, investments in meal solutions, if it's very nice salads, if it's uh, unique meals with a very healthy proposition. So I think that whole, uh, what you call out of home meal solutions, that whole uh, field is going to blur also with the supermarkets and, and, and the restaurants. I think that will be in a common space. We call it that we would like to gain uh, our share of stomach, uh, irrespectively uh, um, where that uh, beautiful meal is coming from. What does that say to Pim about our delayed gratification ability, that we need to see food and consume it immediately? Uh, I'm curious, just you're talking about scale. And I have to wonder how important Amazon and Walmart are to the sort of pressure and race to advance sufficiently technologically. I mean, are you finding it increasingly difficult to compete given their scale? Um, 
Also a good question, but um, if we look at scale for us, it's uh, relative market share important in the markets where we operate. We have number one and two positions in all the markets along the East Coast, from Bangor in Maine to, to, uh, to the southern part of, of the Carolinas. And uh, it's about local scale, so local market share, and we connect them with the great local brand you just mentioned. And we believe that uh, a strong local market share combined with brand strength is that, that in an omni-channel, so stores and online proposition together, that is the strong comp uh, proposition for customers. And uh, with our $45 billion uh, of, um, of, of sales, uh, we have uh, very strong positions and therefore the necessary scale. Your online sales growth was a big bright spot in the third quarter earnings results, in some cases up nearly 20, 21%. Will you be spending more money to build that out? Yeah, we see that, um, uh, we believe that consumers uh, love a proposition where you have an, uh, a bricks and mortar, so a store proposition linked and augmented with an online proposition. Um, and we grow quite fast. Uh, we uh, also will accelerate our growth in the US uh, with people, digital apps, and, and for next year we see there also 20% growth. A lot of people talk about growth in online and magnificent figures everywhere. We should realize that we are only in the food business uh, and fresh food and frozen food and chilled food. That's a very different game than, than selling refrigerators, electronics, books and CDs. And, uh, and that's why uh, that growth uh, is not easy to make. And with the $1 billion at the moment, we are still the leader on the East Coast in uh, food online. 20 seconds or less, I'm just wondering, do you think that Amazon has been successful so far integrating Whole Foods? I don't know, they, they don't give me their boardroom reports on this, but I think... They uh, don't. They don't. Have it's you amazing. asked? Uh, I, I would love to ask them, but I, I think <laughs> but I might know the answer up front. But they have, you know, you know that uh, Aho has uh, check out, uh, what they call check out free stores. Right? Yes, we, we, have, have it. we have a lot of technology there, so I'm, I'm not afraid of the technology. We, ca we, we are doing already amazing things in the US and in Europe. Uh, but uh, also on Amazon, we'll see that fresh food, uh, looking at Amazon Fresh, that is, is a difficult uh, turf to be very successful. And we have a roughly 130 years experience with food. Thanks very much for being with us. Much appreciated. Gets us Thank all you. ready and hungry for lunch. Franz Muller is right? the president and the chief executive of Ajo Del Hayes. I got to say, delayed gratification, that is totally me. <laughs> an inability to do it. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. Healthcare is an area ripe for disruption. Amazon is trying to do just that. Reported today in the Wall Street Journal, they are starting to sell software that mines patient medical records for information that doctors and hospitals can use to improve treatment. Joining us now is Lloyd Beiner, Dean of the Stanford University School of Medicine. We are so pleased to have you. Uh, doctor, I'm just curious from your perspective, is what Amazon doing exactly what you're talking about in terms of modernizing healthcare and using big data and the lessons therein to help patients. Yes, I think uh, it's it's certainly one example of how gleaning information from the massive amounts of data that exist within electronic medical records, how that offers, offers the opportunity to really improve the delivery of healthcare. You know, in order to really have individualized, personalized healthcare, we have to look at the results and the outcomes from thousands and thousands of patients uh, in order to know what the evidence would suggest is the best treatment and prevention for disease in an individual patient. And I think what I also read this morning in the Wall Street Journal uh, that Amazon is moving forward with 
is uh, a step in that direction. And I'm sure that other major tech firms and cloud storage platforms are going to be interested in the same sorts of topics. The limitation for getting information from healthcare data today is not the AI or the algorithms or the ability to do deep learning and neural network type approaches. Those are not the limiting factors. The limiting factor is being able to bring the get data together in a way that those techniques of deep learning can be applied in a meaningful way. Dr. Miner, I'm sure you've seen all of the charts and comparisons in terms of how much per capita the United States spends on healthcare. What is your thought about why do we spend more than any other developed country and we don't necessarily live longer or any better than the citizens of Switzerland, Germany, the Netherlands, and so on? Why do we spend such an outsized amount? In two minutes or less, right? Uh, it, clearly. <laughs> uh, there, there are lots of factors. Certainly the payment system is, is one prominent factor. Um, you know, moving more towards value-based reimbursement is, is something that I think we have begun in the United States, but clearly we need to continue along that pathway. In a strictly fee-for-service world, it becomes difficult to align the incentives, which should be based upon outcomes, that is achieving the best healthcare outcomes with the payments. I mean, that's the way any, any sort of economy works uh, when it works well. So that's been a challenge in the United States. Also, we focused far too much on the latter stages of illness. We need to focus a lot more on prediction and prevention. And that's really been our goal uh, in Stanford Medicine. We define our strategic initiative as being precision health. We distinguish that from precision medicine. And that we also want to focus great science, great technology on prediction and prevention, in addition to, of course, achieving the cures for those complex diseases. But we ought to be much more focused across the board on being better at prediction and prevention. That will reduce the demands on the system because so much of the healthcare expenditures in the United States is spent in the most complex diseases and in the latter stages of life. So I want you to look into the future. Uh, the topic of your panel that's upcoming is the future of healthcare. And uh, you envision a world where we have holographic MRIs and scans and such so that radiologists can more accurately understand what's going on. Tell us about how close we are to the future you would like to see and some of the features of that future. I think the advances, and we started the discussion today talking about getting information from huge sources of data. So broadly speaking, under the heading of digital health, both the data mining aspects as well as the consumer-focused devices and technologies, those offer a remarkable opportunity to democratize healthcare delivery. You know, last year, uh, our, a group of computer scientists at Stanford working with our dermatologists using a large database of images of skin lesions taken with smartphones, we're able to develop a deep learning based algorithm that could make a diagnosis of a skin lesion as accurately from this algorithm as a trained dermatologist. Wow. Now that has a remark, now that, not every community has a, a dermatologist. And by the way, in the communities that have dermatologists, you can't always get an appointment. But, but and that's one example of many, many others of how we can use the same type of disruptors that have been so impactful in financial services and ordering goods and services and apply those to healthcare. All right, so how is privacy 
an obstacle here because I would imagine people are concerned that some of the big tech companies are gleaning all the information from everything they do on their phones anyway. If they start taking images and sort of connecting their health with their devices that follow them around, uh, how does that play out? Sure. Privacy is absolutely a concern. I think the key, the first step is transparency. So people have to know how their data is going to be used. In the Wall Street Journal report that you and I both read this morning, it mentioned that Amazon furnishes a key uh, that can only be opened or used by the institution that, that has obtained the data. In other words, Amazon will never access, according to the report, the individuals uh, that, whose data form the basis of the deep learning process. You know, that's a first step, but there are lots of other steps that have to be taken as well. I would hope that as we have this dialogue based upon transparency, based upon really all of us in society understanding the opportunity that these approaches offer to improve healthcare, I would hope that each of us as an individual will become more comfortable uh, with how our data will be used because that's the only way we're really going to improve the delivery of healthcare. Now, we just learned that CVS has completed its acquisition of Aetna. What's your position based on your experience as a medical professional, this combination between pharmacy benefit management corporations, regular pharmacies, and health insurers? I think the CVS Aetna merger is representative of a broader trend of consolidation in the healthcare market in the country today. You know, there can be economies of scale and efficiencies from consolidation. There can also be concerns about um, about how the competitive drive and the, uh, the sort of individual delivery systems and the innovation that comes from that, how that might be affected by massive consolidation. With CVS and Aetna and with other similar types of arrangements, what I see is a desire to build truly vertically integrated delivery systems. So where you and I as, as healthcare consumers uh, have everything covered under one umbrella, and that includes being able to get our prescriptions uh, under a comprehensive integrated plan. All right, thanks very much for being with us. Much Thank appreciated. You. Uh, Dr. Lloyd Miner is the Dean of Stanford University's School of Medicine, and he is here at the Bloomberg The Year Ahead conference talking about the future of healthcare and healthcare delivery fascinating discussion. I love the idea of being able to take a picture of something that concerns you and having Dr. Googleberg uh, give me an answer. Yeah, while you're in your autonomous driving vehicle. Drinking some champagne. This is Bloomberg. Today, CVS Health has closed its $70 billion deal to purchase the health insurer Aetna. Here to tell us more about the world of healthcare, Michael Ray, founder, chief executive, RX Savings Solutions. Michael, thank you very much for being with us. We've been waiting for this deal to close for many months. Do you think this is going to really transform the way healthcare is delivered to Americans? No, I do not. Um, I think that the, really what you see here is a combination of two companies uh, in the healthcare space, one that handled you know, strictly pharmacy benefits and one that handled and underwrote risk on the health uh, insurer side. Uh, I don't expect uh, the, the consumer experience to change. I don't expect costs to change uh, because of it. Um, I really just think it's, it's kind of a combination and a new brand. Michael, one thing that possibly 
could change the landscape is the fact that big corporations are sort of taking things into their own hands. We've talked about, for example, uh, Berkshire Hathaway teaming up with J.P. Morgan and others to create their own health network. Um, But you're seeing it also with your own company, right? Yes, we are. So we recently signed a deal with the Health Health Transformation Alliance, the HTA, uh, which is a combination of about 50 companies, American Express, Coke, um, some of the some of the really large uh, large players it represents about six million lives, and they have really formed this coalition to try to to your point take uh, take things into their own hands and actually start to exert some of their own influence on what decisions are made and and how uh, how consumers navigate the space. So is the consequence for this potentially lowering the insurance costs for the companies or is it having collective pressure on the drug makers to lower prices? Yeah, it's going to be both. So when a market is efficient, when information flows freely, the idea is that when information is shared between the companies and also when consumers have more information, they can navigate the healthcare space like they do in every other facet of their life that makes wiser decisions and and lower prices. Is there any empirical evidence to support that? Absolutely. So we have uh, a number of case study clients, some 150,000 life group that uh, we had a a four to one ROI in under 15 months. It is determined by how consumers navigate and begin to use tools. And that comes down to marketing and how they're positioned. Uh, But at the end of the day, um, you know, there's a lot of ideas in the market. Uh, when you can actually produce ROI, that that's meaningful in the world we live in. So, Michael, I think the last time we talked was before the midterm elections. We've gotten the midterm elections results. The Democrats took the House. I'm just wondering what this means in terms of political pressure on... Uh, reducing uh, pharmaceutical drug prices. Well, it, it's everyone agrees it's a it's a populist uh, you know item. Everyone agrees that they want drug prices to, to go down at least in their in their speaking uh, you know speeches. But I don't expect anything to to actually change. Um, you see, can you a, imagine that? <laughs> there are too many market forces, too many strong lobbies. Uh, you've got a you know Republican Senate in a in a Democratic House for starters. Um, so there may be small small things like the gag clause was recently removed. Um, that's a very minor win, uh, but everyone will hold on to it and, and make sure that everyone knows you know during the next election cycle. But really transformational change is going to be tough to come by. Is transformational change stymied by the fact that Medicare and Medicaid do not negotiate drug prices? 100% yes. So this is all at the margin. This has nothing, I mean, it's like saying your biggest customer has no say in the cost of the product or service that they're buying. Correct. And I, I you know, so that, there was a very bad deal made a while back uh, on this. And unfortunately, we're living with the consequences and, and some of these drug companies have free reign when they have, you know, a market essentially cornered they can make the price whatever they want, get coverage, and it costs taxpayers money. Okay, so this goes back to what you're working on currently, getting a number of big companies, including IBM, Verizon, and American Express together uh, to try to share pricing information with their uh, with their employees and, and exert their own pressure. If all of the companies, the big corporations in the United States, joined forces and did some sort of thing like this, mm-hmm. could that be enough? My belief is yes. I, it, my belief is that that is, the, that is the single best bet to make, whether it's our company or another company that's fulfilling that need. Uh, the market has to be able to vote. It has kept markets in check in every other uh, industry. And we have to believe that if 
if consumers understand what their decision or what their options are, they can make better decisions and that will regulate a market. Will we see an end to tax credits for orphan drugs? Um, I don't think so. No, and, and, and I'm not necessarily opposed to those. Um, there are some, some disease states that deserve those dollars, in my opinion, um, but I don't think that they'll go away. So to the point that you were just talking about, uh, if you could just give us a little bit of a sense of what your platform does and whether you actually see that happening, whether big corporations are accelerating their mo move into taking control of healthcare costs themselves enough that there actually could be some kind of uh, reduction in drug prices. Yeah, so uh, big corporations target, for example, um, you know, they're on the hook for to pay a lot of money on the backside of a, of a pharmacy claim. Um, the thought is, though, if they can empower their consumers to understand when they're at the doctor's office or even after, if they're trying to treat blood pressure, there might be 10 different agents they could use. Um, each of those agents have different prices depending on the pharmacy that is, that is chosen. If you can distill that complex information down into something that's simple for consumers to understand, they can make choices at that point and pick the lowest cost pharmacy, the lowest cost drug, and not have anyone telling them what to do. People naturally resist when they are forced to make a, you know, to make a decision that, that a third party wants. We don't have that bias. We don't care which one they pick. We just want them to know the, the options. And like you would expect, 90% of the time, they pick the lowest priced pharmacy and the lowest priced drug. Michael, whenever I meet anyone who comes to visit the United States, particularly from Europe, and they talk about the healthcare system and the single payer options that exist in Europe. Mm -hmm. They ask one question. How do you live with the anxiety and stress and complexity of healthcare in the United States? Is there any evidence to suggest that single payer would be a way to go? Uh, it depends who you ask. Right. Well, <laughs> highly charged question. <laughs> um, yeah, there, there is, you know, there's some efficiencies and there are rules that are put in place to control things like drug pricing in Europe. And those things absolutely can have a big effect. We were just talking uh, before this and, you know, it, there is high anxiety to be sick in America. And, and that goes for sick people and, and healthy people. Nobody wants that to be them because you don't know what you're going to be exposed to. Um, so it, there is anxiety. Um, you're going to need people to administer those benefits either way, whether it's a single payer or multiple payers. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't think it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen in the near future. Michael Ray, thank you so much for being with us. Michael Ray is founder and chief executive officer of RX Saving Solutions, based in Overland Park, Kansas, but joining us here at our uh, 730 Lexington the headquarters. The big rule, do not get sick. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.